Isaiah chapter 53, and verses 4 through 6, is where our scripture reading comes from. And you look at verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah chapter 53. Here the Bible says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we have seen him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace is upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53 is one of those chapters to me that's very difficult to read through and to study without getting a little bit emotional about it because we can say it's all about Christ, and that's correct. We can say it's all about us, that also would be correct. But I think more accurately we can say Isaiah 53 is all about the love of God we find shown through His Son, as we find here in verses 4 through 6. So this morning I want to show the power of God's love as we find it revealed in the scriptures. When you think of love, what comes to your mind? When you think of love, what comes to your mind? We may think of the love we have for our children, for our grandchildren, our spouse. We may think of the love we have for our friends. We may think of the love we have for our brethren. Now, when you think about those things, compared to what you think of when you think about the love of God, what comes to your mind when you think about the love of God. For me, it almost immediately goes to the sacrifice of His Son on the cross, because that is the most supreme act that we find of God's love. We find numerous examples of God's love throughout the Scriptures, which if we were going to do that, we need a lot more time than we have this morning. But our mind usually goes to the sacrifice of God's Son on the cross. And that's why we're going to begin today in Isaiah chapter 53, Looking at how, looking at God's love through Christ. In Isaiah 53, looking at verses 4 and 5, we find the idea here, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs. In Isaiah chapter 53, 4 and 5. He has borne our griefs. We think about that idea there in verse 4. He knows, he knows he doesn't say he has borne some of our griefs. Or he has carried some of our griefs, Right? I guess to be reminded that insurance sometimes only covers some things, right? Some things are covered. Some things are not in your policy, right? With Christ, everything was within the policy, right? The sins of all mankind was covered from front to back, from beginning to end. When we put on Christ in baptism, we get to have the remittance of our sins. He has borne our griefs. He suffered to save us from our sins. He suffered in order to fulfill also the Father's will. He bore our sin as the only one who could. We find there in verse 4, He has carried and carried our sorrows. Yet we have seen Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You think about that phrase, We have seen Him stricken. Well, He was wounded because of our sins, wasn't he? He was wounded because of our lawless deeds. He was wounded because of our breaking of the law of God. We find also, we find there in verse 5, excuse me, in verse 5 and following, we find that the chastisement of our peace 
was also upon him. Be turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. And again, this won't be on the screen, but Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6 and verse 23, we were reminded of a very fundamental aspect when it comes to sin. Romans 6 and verse 23 tells us, For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6 verse 23. The wages of sin is death. We find in Isaiah 53, though, that the cost or the chastisement for our peace was upon him. That is, our hope for peace and rest from sin the thing about this peace he's talking about, he's not talking about being able to just have a peaceful day. He's talking about the peace that comes from having our sins forgiven because we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That peace, he says, was upon him. He tells us there in verse 5, And by his stripes we are healed. By Christ's pain and death we are saved. We are saved because of what Christ has done for us. No one else could lay down their life and take away our sins by them doing so. If someone else was to die for us, if Nehemiah, if they said, this is for your sins, what would happen? We would still be in our sins. No man can die for Christ, die for, for our sins, but only Christ. Hebrews 9 and verse 14 tells us here, How much more should the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You think about this phrase there in Hebrews 9, verse 14. How much more should the blood of Christ, I think about it this way, how much more does the blood of Christ have to do for us in order for us to turn to God? He says, how much more should the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more does Christ have to do for us to turn to God? I think it's a logical question for us to consider. The thing about by his stripes, it is by the love of Christ we can overcome our sins. And it's by his mercy that we are saved through his blood. We go back to Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, this time we're going to be looking in Romans chapter 5, looking at verse 8. In Romans 5 and verse 8, here the Bible says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his own love toward us. That is, he shows us his love for us by doing certain things. You may have heard sometimes actions speak louder than words. That's a very tough statement and very strong one, but it's true, isn't it? God can tell us he loves us all day long, but until we actually see an example of how much he loves us, it shows that he does love us, all we have is words, isn't it? And so we look at Romans 5, verse 8, he tells us here, but God demonstrates. He shows, He reveals His love toward us. And how does He do that? One example He says is in that while we were still sinners, while we were still in our sin, before we ever even came to the obedient relationship with God, while we were still in our own sin, doing things our own way, Christ died for us. Christ died. You think about that time that Christ was on the cross. It's hard to think about sometimes. Even those who are mocking him, Christ died for them. Those who sped upon him, Christ died for them. Those who mocked him while he hung on the cross, Christ died for them. Those who scourged him, which is a very small word, which we'll talk about a little bit later, that describes really the idea that he was just beaten without mercy. 
and kept alive just enough to go to the cross. So weak he couldn't carry his own cross, if you remember correctly. Christ endured all those things, not for people he hates, but for people he loves. God doesn't do such things for those he does not care about. If you don't care about someone, do you do things that are sacrificial? Probably not. If you don't care about someone, you don't really love someone, it's very unlikely you'll do things that show that would perhaps put forth the idea that you do love them. Let's jump ahead to Isaiah 53, this time looking at verse 12. We have a result here of God's love for us. In Isaiah 53 and verse 12, he says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The idea here that because of Christ sacrificed for us, the faithful, the great, the strong, get to have a blessing because of what God has done through us through his Son. He tells us why there in verse 12, Because he poured out his soul unto death, now, because he poured out his soul into death, he will divide a portion of the great and divide the spoil with the strong. That also tells us that without, if he did not pour his soul into death, there would be nothing to be given to the great, and there would be nothing divided among the strong. He had to die in order for these things to take place. He tells us there in verse 12, And he was numbered with the transgressors. He was treated as if he was just another sinner, because we know, first of all, he was not a sinner. He bore the sins of mankind. Christ became, we might say, sin itself because he bore the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future, on the cross. He hung between two thieves, two thieves thus he was numbered with the transgressors. And he died there hours later after being scourged and beaten severely. The Bible tells us there in verse 12, and he bore the sin of many. Think about that. Isn't that a small word to think about many? Would you describe the sin of all mankind, past, present, and future, as just many? We have many bikes. We have many clothes. Many sins. That's an understatement, isn't it? He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's like stepping in between us and the price of sin because that's exactly what he did. That's something that Superman is well known for. Many times when they bring it back to a movie, as they're going to, I'm sure, again and again and again, because that's what Hollywood does, right? Remake things that you're sick and tired of them. But they bring him back, what happens? He said, at some point, he'll step between an innocent person and armed gunmen and protect them, right? And the bullets bounce off, right? Isn't that what Christ does for us? He steps between us and the high price of sin, and he takes the price of sin for us. Because he's the only one that can do so and give us the, the ability to have heaven as our home. I want us to think about for a second point this morning how you are the reason. We're going to stay in Isaiah 53 for this portion but Isaiah 53, we already read this, but you can include verse 4, but, but we're going to include just verse 5. Think about this, how you are the reason. Because we find here, if you take the word you in Isaiah 53 and put your name in, it becomes much more personal. We hear people do it all the time for John 3.16, right? But the same thing we can find in Isaiah 53, verse 5, and really in verse 4 as well. Think about this for a second. He was wounded for your transgressions. He says, are there in, verse, in the New King James, are transgressions, but it's yours and mine, isn't it? 
It's Russ's, it's Hayden's, it's Doyle's, it's Vance's, it's everybody's, right? That's what he's talking about. It's you and me. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Again, that three-letter word is us in verse 5, isn't it? You and me. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Now notice this in verse 5. He says, And by his stripes we, that is us, the Christian, are healed. But it's only through the blood of Christ. All these things in verses 4 and 5 tell us and remind us that we are the reason. We know that God loves us enough to make his son the sacrifice for sin. We find this in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And here the Bible tells us, For God so loved the world, that gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God, God did not send his Son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You notice in verses 16 and 17, there's still the condition that says there's still the possibility that people may not ever go to heaven, despite what God has done for them through his Son. We've mentioned this many times before there in verse 16. Whoever believes in him should not perish. This should not sound like a guarantee that nobody's ever going to perish and go to hell. Should not means there's no reason. There's no logical reason that a person dies and goes to a place we know the Bible describes as hell. There's no reason for that. It's not necessary. But we know it happens all the time, don't we? When we refuse, as Isaiah 53 verse 12 tells us, to make his soul the offering for our sin, that's a reference to our obedience to the gospel, when we refuse to do that, we're going to have ourselves in a great jeopardy, and if we don't correct ourselves and make ourselves pleasing the sight of God by obeying the gospel, we find John 3 verse 16, he tells us what? That should not perish, will turn to those he will perish, and will have everlasting life in heaven. Verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might, might be saved. Might. That is a very, very big word. There's a possibility of salvation, and there's a possibility of condemnation. In verse 17. We find in verse 17, he says, he God, For God did not send, the world, send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Why is, why is that? The world's already condemned because of sin anyway, right? Does Christ condemn sin? Absolutely, left and right, throughout His time on earth. But mankind was already condemned because of the sin and their, their choices to disobey God. Christ died so we might be saved. We also find that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for another. We find that in John 15 and verse 13 here. He says, Greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. We also know that Christ tells us we are all now his friends. We do whatever he commands us, right? So he's talking about Christians. There's no greater love than for Christ to lay down his life for you and me. There's no greater display of love. That sounds just like Romans chapter 5 verse 8, doesn't it? God demonstrates his own love towards us, and while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The same idea here in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one in this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Some lessons for us today. Because we have all strayed at some point, all have sinned, and we need the blood of Christ. We need the blood of Christ. Because mankind has sinned. 
We know that as we saw back in Romans 6, verse 23. For all have sinned and, uh, and have fallen short of the glory of God. We also find in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, right? The wages of sin is death. Because we all have strayed at some point, we need the blood of Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 6 tells us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We weren't born saved. We become saved when we obey the gospel, right? Therefore, at some point in our life, we have strayed. Either before we obey the gospel, maybe even before, maybe sometime after we depart and we have strayed. He says, we have all, we have all gone, or gone astray. We have turned, he says, everyone to his own way. As we have turned to do things how we think they should be done. Not living for God, but living for us. He says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid upon Christ the sin of all of us. And he mentions here that sin he mentions is going astray, isn't it? Look at 1 John 2 and verse 16. He reminds us here, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. When we go astray, we get involved in things such as this, right? We start focusing on the lust of the flesh. We start focusing on the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That is, we look for things that will give us pleasure with our eyes, with our bodies, and we take pride to the point we no longer think we need God. We think we can just do things ourselves. And that is a mistake that has a very high price. At some point, everyone has been separated from God. And we find that simple things are commonplace, as we find here in 1 John 2, verse 16. Simple things are commonplace on earth, but they are not from God. The power of God's love is seen in the sacrifice of Christ. If you look at Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 13. Luke 23, beginning in verse 13, says, And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. Indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. You know what that means? There was no reason for Christ to get up and just walk out. That's what Pilate is saying. He could have just got it locked out. He says, I find nothing against them. You accuse him of stuff, and he says, I don't find any of it. Verse 15, no, neither did Herod, that's two, right, that say he hasn't done anything. For I send you back to him, and indeed, indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. What he's saying means I'll basically give him a slap on the wrist, which you can guarantee it was much more than that. And then I'll let him go. It would seem, some would say, that Pilate perhaps is going to suggest they just take him aside, beat him a little bit, and just let him go. But again, was he even deserving of that? No. He did nothing wrong. Pilate, we know, as we find here, is just trying to appease the people. And we also know that he was not one who was willing to allow himself stress between stress his relationship between him and Caesar, as would also be brought in later. They would say, if you let him go, you're not afraid of Caesar. Well, he flips out and says, okay, we'll deliver him to your will. Verse 17, he says, For it is necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And they all cried at once, saying, Away with this man, release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown to prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. So we find here that after he tells them he would chastise them, chastise them and let them go, he says, well, it's, it's commonplace to let someone go. So what he say? We're going to choose Christ to be the one who we're going to release, right? But instead, he asked them to pick one. 
And we find here, according to Luke's account, the description of Barabbas and the type of person he was. He was in prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. A completely different character from Christ, right? Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Now think about this. Why would you put Christ next to Barabbas, who was convicted of rebellion and murder? Because you probably think that there's no way they'll pick Barabbas. There's no way. This guy's a murderer. This guy stirs up trouble. They're not going to pick Barabbas. They'll pick Jesus. But he was wrong in verse 21. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I'll therefore chastise him and let him go. Now, crucifixion was basically, as we all, if you're familiar with it very much, you know it's pretty much death by torture, right? I don't know how else you can describe it. You talk about having nails driven through your wrists and then through your feet, being hung naked from a cross with a crown of thorns in your head, and just, people just wait for you to die, right? Death by torture. And that's why he says in verse 22, what evil has he done? There were other ways to kill a man. Crucifixion was designed to torture a man, and he would die by torture. And that's what they wanted. We find in verse 21, they cried out for that. Verse 23, he says, uh, verse 22 tells us he would, he would chastise him and let him go if he found no reason for death in him. Verse 23, but they were, in, they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. That's a reminder of that idea that the louder you are, you think the, the more right you are. They were pretty loud, weren't they? But they thought they were right. Demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. Who was it that was shouting? So-called religious people, right? The Jews, the chief priests, religious people were condemning the Son of God. Now we know and understand by prophecy that Christ was going to go to the cross for all mankind, regardless of what was going to take place. But isn't it sad that it was the Jews and these so-called chief priests, the religious people, who put him there? That tells us that even though we may be convinced we're right, there may be a chance we are dead wrong. And Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what Paul told them, wasn't it? Or Peter told them, right? When he began to preach to them in Acts 2, he told them, You have put Christ on on the cross, the Son of God. A strongly worded sermon that that, uh, resulted in many being baptized in verse 28. The loud voices prevailed that he be crucified. Verse 24, so Pilate gave sentence that should be as they requested. He released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and for murder. Notice how Luke repeats that. Why is that? To help us understand who who they're willing to give up in order to get Christ on the cross. In their mind, they thought, well, we'll just deal with Barabbas, but we want Christ dead. They hated Christ so much they were willing to let go of an innocent man and to bring back into their fold a a murderous man, Barabbas. Verse 25, And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and for murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. It's a scary thing to think about, isn't it? Basically, Again, we understand prophecy. Christ would go to the cross. 
the misunderstanding, refusal to listen, and outright rebellion and arrogance and sin put Christ on the cross for all mankind. Christ's love for mankind is not merely its surface, but it runs very, very deep. We think about the sacrifice of Christ and the love that God shows for us through His Son, and we know He shows it other ways as well. But you don't go through such things for people, for people who you just like, right? You don't just go through those things for people who you just met once or twice. No, you go through these types of things for those who you love very, very deeply. And Christ shows us by His actions that He wants all mankind to be saved and to one day have heaven as their home. Going back to Isaiah for one final verse, but this time Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, we are reminded that cleansing and purity is found only in God. Isaiah chapter 1, looking at verse 18. Here, the Bible tells us, Come now, and let us reason together, said the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. We find numerous times, and we find examples of this also in the book of Revelation, that a person's garments sometimes are, are used figuratively as a person's life. So we'll talk about sometimes how your garments have been stained. We find there in Micah, when God talks about how he hates divorce, he says because it covers one's garment or life in violence, which is a reference to sin. And so we find here this idea of this garment that is stained with sin. He says there are scarlet. Imagine having on a nice white T-shirt and you get a red spot. Is that going to show? It could be probably the tiniest spot, but it would show very clearly, right? Sometimes our eyes are just drawn right to it. And that's the image we find here in verse 18. A white garment, but it is spotted by sin that is scarlet, that is red. And he says how... In verse 18, how our sins will be blotted out, how they should be as white as snow, that that garment will again be white when we obey the gospel. He says, though they are red like crimson, again a reference to sin, he says they shall be as wool. Wool is white. When it's of high quality and well and done correctly, wool is white and very, very perfect white, right? There's no spot, there's no little dark spot, there's nothing. And we find here that it is through Christ that our sins will be blotted out. Even though our sins are like scarlet, even though our sins are red like crimson, they should be as snow and as wool, they should be white. We obey the gospel. In Acts 2, verse 38 tells us we are immersed for the remission of our sins and, and to receive for the remission of our sins. And we also find Galatians 3, verse 27, we are placed in the body of Christ. We are immersed in the water grave of baptism, as we find in Romans 4 and Romans 6. We come up out of those waters of baptism, a new creature in Christ. Our robes are white, because the Revelation says they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, right? Our robes are white. We think about the love that God shows for mankind. It is a sacrificial love. As we mentioned briefly this morning, the Greek word there is agape, which is sacrificial love, which means it was a high price that was paid. When we love individuals, when we love others, do we make sacrifices? Do we give things up? Maybe it's our time, maybe it's some of our money, maybe it's some of our items, whatever it may be. But for God, He gave up His Son on the cross 
who for three days would sit in a tomb, lie in a tomb, until he would rise again, conquering death and giving us a chance to have heaven as our home. And we put him on in obedience. Let us remember how much God loves us. And let us ask ourselves, how much do we love God? How much do we want to see God in heaven? The Bible tells us that on Judgment Day, it is His Son, Christ, who is the judge. And if we want to see God face to face sometimes, the Bible says, we have to be the one who has obeyed the gospel. And we'll hear those words on the Day of Judgment, which you find there in the book of Matthew. Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord, which is a reference to heaven. Welcome in, that's a command to enter into heaven, right? That's what we want to hear. But if we're going to hear it, and we're going to enjoy the love that God has for us, we must be those who are part of the body of Christ. 